And like, I finally got it. I was like, all right, this is what happens when I drink a day of drinking and I have police and DHS in my house. And it's not like that for everybody, but that's how it is for me. And I finally, I finally just accepted. I I just don't want to live like that anymore. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, O. On today's episode of the Share Podcast, we have Melissa Johnson joining us. Melissa has started her own recovery movement called My Truth Starts Here. It's a blog, and she's also on Instagram and Twitter. She recently started the blog September 1st of this year and recently celebrated six months clean and sober. But before we jump into Melissa's story, here's a little share podcast news. First, I'd like to dedicate this episode to Susan, Lewis, and Buddy, who've generously sent in donations to the share podcast. And if you would like to show your support by contributing to the Share Podcast, please do so on the website. On the top right-hand corner of the website is the Donate button. Click on it and make your donation. Again, thank you, Susan, Lewis, and Buddy. We absolutely appreciate all your support. Next is more Sober Nation news. I just went to the website and I noticed that there's a podcast button on the top right corner of the page next to Sober Clothing. Click on that and you will see all the different podcasts that are featured on Sober Nation. Yours truly, the Share Podcast is listed in there along with WWA, Wrestling with Addiction, The Recovery Elevator, and the That Sober Guy podcast. Be sure to go to www.sobernation.com and check out all the latest podcast episodes. And a quick reminder for those of you that would like to submit your written stories or articles, I've already received a couple that will be posted in the new blog section. I'm going to wait till we get a few more just so we have a nice stock of articles and stories before we post the blog officially. Um, And ideally, it would be nice to receive a steady stream of articles or stories from our listeners. So make sure to submit your story or your article to o at thesharepodcast.com, and it will be listed on the blog. And guys, seriously, if you like the show and you're listening from an iPhone, that means you're listening on iTunes. So go to iTunes and give us a five-star review. It's the best way to show your support. If you don't know how to leave a rating and review on iTunes, then go to YouTube and type in, how do I leave a rating and review on iTunes? And there are about 5,500 results on how to leave a rating review on iTunes. So get over there and give us a five-star rating. It's the best way to show your support. And that's all the Share Podcast news we have for today. It's time to jump into Melissa Johnson's story. But first, a message from our sponsor. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.sobernation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. Now back to the show. 
Hey, Melissa, thanks for joining us. Hi, oh, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling really good today. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. You ready to get started? I'm ready. <laughs> All right, wonderful. Folks, today we have Melissa Johnston joining us on the Share Podcast. The founder of My Truth Starts Here. She's an advocate for mothers in recovery and a blogger. So, Melissa, let's dive right in. Tell us okay. about how your life is today, your hobbies, exercise. Give us your normal daily routine, including recovery, and tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about My Truth Starts Here. Okay, well, tomorrow I actually celebrate five months sober. Congratulations. Um, thank you. <laughs> I drank on May 18th and completely just everything that I had worked really hard for came crashing down. So basically right now... What I'm doing is I normally do like a 6.30 a.m. meeting. I'll get up about 6 o'clock, make some tea, and then go off to the meeting at 6.30. And then, you know, if I don't work that day, then I'll go do a hot yoga class. I will do a little bit of writing. I like to jog. I have a girl that calls me every day, and we spend, I don't know, some between 30 minutes and 45 minutes on the phone just talking about things and she actually has more time sober than me, which is really weird, but she just insisted that I sponsor her and, you know, then that she, could, she just really wanted to call me every day. So we talk on the phone every day. What else? I have to do drug and alcohol tests. So every day I have a color that I have to call. If my color is called, then I have to go do a urinary analysis where they send off my urine and they check for alcohol. I know it sounds gross, but... Um, <laughs> Because whenever I drank on um, May 18th, I got my kids taken away, and I'm already on probation. And so part of my punishment is to um, be tested every day. So. Right. And what about the My Truth Starts Here? How would you get that started? I'm one of those drinkers where I, I always... I get arrested a lot. Like, jail is a big, huge part of my story. And they... I was looking at five years prison. Wow. And something happened up at the courthouse. I switched the DA switch. It was really weird. Um, I had a new DA that was willing to let me have community sentencing, which is like probation, just a little bit more strict. And I ran into my old sponsor and I told her that she said, well, you're meant to be doing something else. There's something that you need to be doing. There's somebody that you need to be helping. If you're not going to be inside jail or prison, then you need to be out helping somebody. Beautiful. And um, it just kind of confirmed that voice that was in the back of my head. I'm like, you know what? This I do need to be out there and not hiding and not ashamed anymore because I've been so ashamed for so long of, you know, of who I am and what I've gone through. And so that's where I talked about it quite a bit. I'm going to start a blog. I'm going to start a blog. And finally, one day, like, this, my truth starts here. It popped up in my head and I just started <laughs> Well, that's basically where it came from. That's that is <laughs> the long fantastic. story. No, that's and that's what we want to hear. That's what we want to share. I've got a couple of buddies of mine that also do podcasts. One is uh, that sober guy podcast and the Recovery Elevator. And I remember that uh, when Paul started the Recovery Elevator, he only had like I think it was about five five six months when he started it. And it's a huge undertaking, but he needed something to keep him accountable. And so, you know, he made a commitment that he was going to produce a recovery related podcast every week and it kept him sober for a year. So 
you know, since I started doing podcasts and since I've, you know, started meeting more and more people, I realized the importance of finding the way for you to hold yourself accountable. And whether it's a blog or Twitter or whatever it is, my truth starts here, my story, nobody else has my story. So for me to be able to go out and share it to the world is going to help others that need to hear this. Talking about being on probation and talking about getting your kids taken away from you, it breaks my heart. And there's going to be women out there that are going to hear this and they're going to relate. And it's so important because the journey begins and the journey never ends. We have to find that foundation and that truth that keeps us clean and sober. So, you know, I applaud you for coming on the show and sharing your your story and telling us your truth. So I'm excited to hear the whole story. Um, But first, a couple questions. Today, how do you maintain your spiritual condition, that conscious contact with a higher power? I pray. I guess a lot of it also going into my AA meeting and hearing other people talk. The meeting that I really, really get the most out of, it's open topic. Mm -hmm. And it's early in the morning, and you wouldn't think that we'd have some serious talk in there. But we really have some good open, honest discussion about alcoholism in our lives and just everything. And that is, I walk out of there feeling closer to God. And that's, that's one of the ways that, I don't know, that I stay connected, stay close to my, yeah, connected. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly how I do it. I have to go to a meeting to get connected or feel connected. You know, I, I pray, I try and meditate in the mornings, I call my sponsor, I talk to my sponsees. But, you know, you get into that meeting and you're there for an hour and you're hearing people open up and being vulnerable and you just feel it. You just feel God in the room. You're doing exactly what you need to be doing. That's fantastic. So how old were you the first time you drank or used drugs? And what was it? Was it alcohol? Was it drugs? No, I drank alcohol. And I remember being really young and my dad giving me wine coolers and my parents were young and they were divorced. And so we would go see him like every other weekend. And I absolutely do not blame my dad, all my troubles for my dad giving me wine coolers. Absolutely not. But I think he just kind of thought it was a cool, like he would take me and my sister fishing and we would fish and he would give us a wine cooler. And I remember just thinking how cool it was and how great it was. And I would get so excited when it was time to go to the store because I knew I was going to be able to pick out a wine cooler and pick out which flavor I wanted. And that was the earliest that I remember drinking. But I do remember, I think I was 11 or 12, and my dad and my stepmom took us to our aunt's wedding. It was my stepmom's sister. She was getting married. It was a huge wedding. And the reception afterwards had an open bar and my dad asked me and my sister if he wanted a drink and he said y'all can each have one drink he um, got us each a fuzzy navel and immediately I had that phenomenon of craving that everybody talked about and I think I was 12 and I was being I was sweet talking the bartender and he get me another drink (laughs) and um, I'm like I have to have more I need it I need it I need it and I think I, I, he let me have like three fuzzy navels and then there had this, a table that had glasses of champagne already filled and you just walk up and grab a glass and I would just grab it in glasses and I told my dad, I was like, I think that I'm drunk and um, he was like, oh, you're fine. Just go have another one. And I was like, okay. 
And so I went and just kept drinking. And after the wedding, I was in the back seat. My sister was holding my head up and my stepmom was pissed off. Oh, yeah. To this day, we cannot bring that day up. But I remember thinking just how great I felt. And I remember walking down this hall, trying to go to the bathroom. And I was kind of stumbling and everything was blurry. And I loved it. <laughs> like, oh, this is wow. great. This is fantastic. Yeah. And I was on the dance floor. I was dancing. I just remember nothing. I, I was thinking nothing, just how great it was. You were all warmed up. All right, you are all. So I'm just going to turn this show over to you now. All right, it's time okay. for you to share your story, the battle yeah. against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and finally your journey into recovery up until today. So Melissa, take it away. Okay. Well, um, let's see. I'll start off when I was younger. Just a little bit about when I was younger. I always thought that I was, I always had these crazy thoughts. Like my mind was always going completely just insane thoughts when I was younger. And my um, mom will still talk about how I would drive her insane because I always, I thought I was dying or I thought I was sick or um, I thought everybody was staring at me. I thought everybody was talking about me and I, and like, not in a good way. I was always like freaked out. I'm like, are they talking about me? Are they are they looking at me? They would have to assure me, no, nobody's looking at you. Look around. Nobody's looking. And then I remember my stepdad having to stay up with me one night to assure me that I was not going to die when I went to sleep. And I was like, I really think I'm going to die. I think I have AIDS. And he was like, no, you don't have AIDS. <laughs> wow. I was, Jeez. I was afraid. Yeah. I was totally freaking nuts. And let's see. And then I, I started experimenting with drugs very early on i tried cocaine and mushrooms um at the age of 14 and i tried weed also i had a best friend that her parents were alcoholics and they always had beer in the house and um so we would sneak beer and um try to sneak some weed here and there and i just was never a big fan of the weed and then i was definitely not a fan of mushrooms or any of that Cocaine plays a bigger story, is a bigger part in my story later on. But at first, I really wasn't so much into it. It was just the alcohol. Like, it really just takes me to the place that I want to be every time. And I was a troubled teenager. Like, I ran away. Uh, my mom sent me to live with my dad. And then my dad sent me to live with my mom. And I always found a way to drink. Another best friend of mine in high school who is not alcoholic, her parents would let her have alcohol in her closet. And so I would get up early in the morning, get ready, go over to her house and take some shots. And then we would go to school. She Oof. would ride with me to school and I would um, drink and drive. And I remember just feeling just on top of the world like this is the best feeling. A buzz early in the morning on the way to school. And I was um, a junior, I think. And I think that was the first, it was her dad that actually asked me one morning, he said, you know, they have a place where you can go get help for that. And I said, get help for what? He said, go outside and look at your car. And so I went outside and my car was halfway up on the curb in the, the neighbor's yard oh. and halfway on the street. <laughs> and I was like, your dad is crazy. What is wrong with him? Why is he telling me to go get help? Like, I'm a teenager. 
I'm in high school. This is what we do. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. And I think I was a senior then. And after high school, I moved out. Me and my best friend got an apartment and we drank night and day, night and day. Just like blackouts, disgusting mess. And that was the first time. I think I was 19 when I looked in the mirror and I was yellow. And um, I asked my friend, I said, look at me in the mirror. Look at me. Like, what do I look like? She's like, you are yellow. Well, maybe I need to cut back on the alcohol a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. But that was, was, I just remember looking at myself and like, it was disgusting. But not disgusting enough for me to quit. And um, we used to go to the local bar and... I think that's my first run in with the cops because they always had cops outside of the local um, cowboys, whatever is in Dallas. And I would get kicked out almost every time. And the cops knew my name and they're like, oh, you can't be in there drunk. You know, you're not of age. And um, I never got arrested or anything like that, but they make me like walk the line right, <laughs> you know, right. in front of all my friends. My friends are walking by. I'm like, hey, yeah, I'm just over here walking the line again. The blackouts were that whenever back then when I drank, I was very mean. I was very mean and I was very violent. And I started a lot of fights with a lot of friends. And I lost some friends. I lost some boyfriends. That was something that happened throughout all my drinking career. Um, When I was 21, I was in the middle of a blackout and I was driving. And I woke up in the middle of a blackout, running a red light and slamming into a car. Ooh. And I got out of the car and I just started to try to walk away from the accident because I was so close to my friend's apartment. I'm like, I'm just going to get there and I'm just going to make it. And um, the cops stopped me and asked me if I was involved in an accident. And I said, yes. And, you know, they did the whole sobriety test, all that. And um, I was arrested. They took me to jail. I was in Arlington, Texas, and I had a warrant in Fort Worth. So I ended up, I was switched from, transferred from Arlington to Fort Worth. I spent like 12 days in jail um, because my family just didn't want to get me out. Right. And, um, which I understand. So I got out and I immediately started drinking again. I didn't have a car and I moved around. I always had a place to stay. I was a crazy drunk girl that did lots of crazy things while I was drunk. And so there was never a shortage of guys' apartments to stay at. I started dating a, um, a married guy who bought me a car. It was just a used car, nothing like huge or anything like that, but um, bought me a car. Within two weeks, I had totaled it. I was living in Dallas, North Dallas at that time in Addison, and I was taking a left at an intersection that was only a go straight lane. And so the car next to me was going straight because she had the choice to either turn left or go straight. Anyways, uh, she T-boned me and I got out of my car. And that time I ran, I ran to my apartment and I made it. And I had glass in my face and glass in my arm and I was like bleeding. And well, the cops ended up figuring out whose car it was because I had paid my cell phone bill that day. So my, um, cell phone number and information was on the receipt in the car and um there was a warrant out for my arrest at this time i had started doing a lot of cocaine because um 
it helps me from blacking out and um, it helps me to drink longer because I black out every time I drink and it's almost, it's like I want to black out though. Like if I'm aware of my surroundings, if I'm aware of what's going on, then I just haven't had enough to drink because I want to be completely numb. I don't want to know what is going on at all. And um, unfortunately, I drive every time I'm like that if I have a car. The police showed up in my apartment. I got arrested. They took me downtown. I had been up all night doing coke and uh, drinking. Surprisingly, there was nothing said about that. They just sent me to jail and um, I was bonded out. And then I got put on probation for that. It's so hard to keep up with all my probation officers and every time I went to jail because it was like all the time. It's wow. like, good Lord. Yes. In 2004, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to doing something when they are completely wasted and not wanting to tell a soul, right. not wanting to tell anybody. And I did something like that. I didn't want to tell anybody and I was so disgusted with myself that I was suicidal. I really was suicidal. And at one point I lived at a high rise down in downtown Dallas. I think I lived on the 24th floor and there was no screen on the window. And I would just look out the window all the time and just want to jump and just like not have the courage. I wanted to drink myself to death. I wanted to just drink enough to have the courage to um, jump out the window, basically. Right. Yeah, that was a bad time. That was a really bad time. I drank, I would wake up in the morning and start taking like shots of tequila. Like I would be like throwing up, but still trying to take the shots um, because I just couldn't stand the thought of being sober. Uh, I just couldn't, I just couldn't stand myself. I, I, I wanted to be somebody else and be somewhere right. else. And just, I didn't even want to look at myself in the mirror. I was so disgusted. I, it was too slow. Like, I wanted to do it suddenly. I'm like, I want to jump out this window. I don't have the courage to do it. So I'm going to just drink and ho excuse me, hopefully get the courage to uh, jump out the window. Right. Um, oh, man, that was a really, really rough spot to be in. I since have told my secret um, whenever I started doing the 12 steps. It's not something that I want to say on the air or really just, you know, get out there. But I'm open about most of the things. I just don't really want to share that. But anyways, um, by 2007, I'm 27. I am doing so much coke. I've lost my apartment. I don't have a car at this point. Um, so I've gone through another car. I didn't total it, but it got taken away. Um, right. I don't make payments on my cars or anything like that. Um, I've got a couple of PIs by then, and then I end up pregnant. Um and with the dad, who is also alcoholic, and we are doing coat together, and it's a, it's a mess. And I decide that I'm going to leave. So I go to Oklahoma and um, decide I'm going to start all over. I move in with my sister and her husband and their two kids. I'm going to save money, and I'm going to just start all over. Everything's going to be fresh. Um, so I get a job at the local bar. Let's <laughs> <laughs> we'll start fresh. <laughs> yes. Start fresh. And um, so I get a job at the local bar. And I, of course, I make friends with the heaviest drinker there is. And I drink a couple of times while I'm pregnant. And I do get drunk a couple of times. Not as much as I did when I was with my daughter. And that's really, really hard to admit that I did that. But I did drink with him. And I had him 
I just thought, you know, moving, changing states, you know, having a kid, all this stuff would like change me. It would make me different, but it didn't. Like I still wanted to drink heavily all the time. And at one point, my sister and her husband separated. So we went and got our own place. And um, she had to take care of my kid a lot because, you know, I was out at the bar. I was passed out. I'm sure a lot of moms can um, relate to that. I will tell one thing that I did that haunts me to this day is my son was, he was little, maybe six months old, maybe, I don't know, less than a year. And I set up a babysitter. I'm like, I'm going to drive him over to the babysitter and I'm going to go have lunch with a couple of girlfriends. It's one of their birthdays. And I'm like, let's have a beer. And, you know, immediately I can't stop. And so by the time I pick up my son, I am really wasted. And I pick him up and I drive to my sister's work for some reason. And I walk in and she says that I'm just completely belligerent. And she's worried because my son is in the car. She can't leave work. Anyway, I just leave. And I go home and she gets off work about an hour later and um, goes home to check on me. And she finds me passed out in my bed and she cannot find my son. And uh, she says she looks everywhere for him and she finds him in the car. He's still in his car seat and um, he is um, unconscious. And so she's a nurse and she gets him out. Um, She revives him. And I have never asked her the details. I made amends for that, but I never wanted to speak about it. The next day, she asked me, she said, do you know what you did with Jacob last night? And I said, I don't want to know. I don't even know. I think a whole day went on where I was like passed out. I have no clue. I said, I don't want to know. She said, you left him in the car. And that was it. I said, don't talk about it. And you would think that something like that would make me stop drinking. But something like that is a reason why I keep drinking because I can't have those thoughts in my head of what I did to my son. I cannot. I have to drown those thoughts of what I did to him and, you know, and what I did to my sister because that's traumatic for her. And, you know, that's her nephew that was could have died because I was wasted. And um, that's something that is haunted me. It's disgusting. I still feel the guilt from that, although I try to work on I'm working on forgiving myself. Yes. Um, anyways, a few years later, I had my daughter um, with the dad. He also likes to um, move states. We think that moving states helps us. The geographic. <laughs> the geographic. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> he moved to Oklahoma with, uh, to, to stay with me at one point. I ended up pregnant, and he ended up in Colorado. And I, at that point, I was living with by myself with just my son. And so there was really nobody to monitor me. And I drank quite a bit of wine when I was pregnant with her. And I remember I blacked out. I had hangovers. And um, that, ugh, it's disgusting to even say it out loud. And that basically continued on throughout the next few years. I got a boyfriend. We fought. We were wasted all the time. We blacked out all the time. And uh, at one point, I decide that I'm going to move back to Texas. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where I get my third DUI. So um, I get a third DUI. And I get out of jail because my family decides they want to leave me in there, which is understandable. They're pissed. They're sick of my crap. And they just want to leave me in there. And so as soon as I get out, they finally get me out, like uh, about three, a little over three weeks later. And um, I immediately decide I'm going to go back to my boyfriend in Oklahoma. Everything's going to be different. We're going to be sober. 
which we were sober for, I think, a month, maybe about a month, maybe a little over a month. It just went downhill from there. Uh, he moved out. And see, I got a public intox. At one point, my kids saw me get arrested. Right before I had moved to Oklahoma, I the day that I decided me and him were fighting, and I said, I'm going to move down to Texas. I packed up stuff in the car, and me and my kids um, went over to my, this guy friend, his apartment. And um, he was out of town, but he said that we could stay there because I was worried about what was going to happen if my boyfriend found us. And then I just started drinking. I ended up passing out. The lady downstairs came up to try to wake me up because my kids were playing outside of the apartment and she couldn't. So she went downstairs and she called the police. And when she came back up to try to wake me up again, she did wake me up and, um, and to let me know that she had called the cops on me. And so me and my kids just sat there and waited for the cops to show up. They thought that I was trying to commit suicide, I guess, because I told them about the situation that was going on. We were kind of like hiding out. And so I think they thought that I was trying to harm myself. Um, but I was not. I just drank heavily. Right. So I spent five, I spent five days in a, um, a mental hospital. And DHS did an investigation. And they decided that it was just a one-time thing. And they gave my kids back to me. And that's when I went down to Texas where I got my third DUI a month later. The whole DUI court and all that stuff took a long time. And I've had a, an interlock on my car for over three years. So there's no drinking and driving, even if I wanted to, um, which is good because I know it's been a blessing in disguise. What is it? It's an interlock, um, a breathalyzer that's um, in my car that I have to breathe into. Um, oh, before you can start it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's been on there for three and a half years. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> no judgment. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I was just like, Like, whoa. I um, I still have two more years with that on there. Okay. About 18 months. And, you know, and like I said, it's expensive. It's a pain. But it has been a blessing in disguise because it stopped me from a lot of drinking and driving and possibly accidents and who knows what. As much as I hate it, I really am glad I have it. Anyways, part of my probation for my third DUI was um, 10 days in jail. Um, They're going to split it up for uh, three days or three weekends. And so I had to drive down to um, Texas, turn myself in um, on Friday night, and then get out at midnight on Monday. Well, um, the first day that I was there, they tell me that um, I have a warrant in Cleveland County, which is where I live in Oklahoma, for child neglect. I said, well... From what? I don't understand. What do you mean? Um, And it was from that incident where the cops were called to the apartment and I was taken to the mental hospital. The um, local police department, they they charged me with child neglect that day and I didn't know. So I had had a warrant out for like uh, over a year, like a year and a half. It happened in 2012 and I found out in like 2013. So it was about a year and a half later that I found out I had a warrant. And... um, that they weren't going to let me out. They're like, we're not going to let you out. You have to stay here for the 10 days. And then we're going to wait for the Cleveland County Police Department to come pick you up. Could not believe it. I said, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I never knew that I had this warrant. This is insane. Just where I live at, it's like a small community kind of. And um, kind of everybody knows each other. And I work at this little restaurant. And I've been there for three years. And I've met a lot of people. And um, I happen to know the sheriff of Cleveland County. 
Anyways, he was contacted and let him know that I was in jail in Texas and they weren't going to let me out. And there was a hold on me. So he calls down there and he gets the hold taken off. So they let me out on Monday. He immediately wanted me in his office on Monday morning. I was like, oh my gosh. So I go in his office and um, he was just like, what's going on? I thought that you were a good mom. I thought that you, you know, what's going on here? Because I, on the outside, I make everything look really good. You know, I have a job, I have a car, I have a house. I, you know, my kids are taken care of. They're, you know, I'm at the school doing little parties. Like I make everything look good. And um, so a lot of people were kind of shocked that um, this was happening. He said, "From now, you're not drinking anymore. And I was so pissed off at him. I said, how dare, I was like, how dare you get me out of jail? I could have just stayed in jail and I could still be drinking. It's just so stupid the way I was thinking. You know? <laughs> you know, I was so angry at him because he got me out of jail and told me I couldn't drink anymore. So, and it, so I had a little resentment towards him, which is so crazy because he did me a huge favor. Wow. Um, Absolute <laughs> insanity. Yes. And that was September and December 12th, um, my kids were taken away and my son had eaten a pot brownie. And gone to school. He told the teacher that he ate a brownie with medicine in it. He found a pot brownie that I had in the kitchen. And immediately I went and did a drug test. I said, test me. They're not mine. Um, I had them for my fr- some girlfriends. And um, which was true. It's just surprisingly true. So they did like the hair follicle test. And um, they just did all these drug tests on me. And I passed. But because of all of my history yeah. with alcohol and my history with the law, they um, took the kids. And it was devastating. It was really devastating. And um, I didn't get sober till February 10th, 2014. I still drank, but I still kept making it look like I wasn't drinking. And I, DHS did not think that I was drinking. My family didn't drink, think I was drinking. They were with my dad and my stepmom and I was making everything seem okay. Like I just didn't want to stop. Um, I just wanted, I was like, this is not my fault. They were not my pot brownies. Um, this is, doesn't have anything to do with alcohol. I don't want, you know, I just didn't want to stop drinking. I mean, forget the fact that I'm on probation from my third DUI and I have a pending child neglect charge, you know, forget that. Like I, I just didn't want to. But I was completely miserable. And I was at a meeting one night and I was just sitting there just miserable. And a lady walked up to me after the meeting and said, Melissa, how are you doing? What's going on? What do you do? You know, and I was just like, who are you? I don't know. Like, I'm so, you know, in this fog. I don't know who you are. And she said, you wait on me and my husband and the kids all the time at the restaurant. And it clicked and said, yes, okay. I was shocked that she was there. And I said, I kind of broke down. I said, my life is a mess. I don't have my kids. I don't have a driver's license. Like, I don't have anything right now. I said, I don't know what to do and I can't stop drinking. I'm so hungover right now. Like, I need help. And it was a few days later after talking with her a little bit and I guess starting to build the trust with her and just um, feeling her compassion towards everything. And for me, I asked her to be my sponsor. And that's when things got serious. She was like, all right, this is what you're doing. These are the meetings that you're going to. And you're not going to drive your car without a driver's license anymore. And I was like, well, how am I supposed to get around? I don't understand. <laughs> and she said, well, you take a bus. And I was like, ew. I don't know. <laughs> don't you know who I am? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and, 
So he was like, you're going to go to your stepmom and your dad. And you're going to tell them that you don't have a driver's license and that y'all are going to have to figure out some way for you to see the kids. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't do that. I can't go tell them that. She was like, why? What are they going to do? They're going to ground you? Like, you already told them that your kids already got taken away because of a pot brownie. Like, what else could you, you know, what's so bad about a driver's license? I was like, okay. And I went and told them. And I went and bought a bike. And I started riding a bike. And I was so angry at her the whole time. Like, I'm riding this bike. And I have a perfectly good car. But technically, my driver's license was suspended. And it's really weird how that works. But it was, even though I had an interlock on my car. I couldn't get it worked out because Texas would tell me to call Oklahoma. Oklahoma would say call Texas. It was a mess. So I just gave up on it and just decided to drive illegally. And I said, I I told this lady in AA, I was like, my sponsor said that I cannot drive because I have a suspended license. But I have a breathalyzer on my car and I drive really well. So I don't see what the problem is. And she just looked at me and she was like, wow, you are alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) Like, wow. I was like hoping for some sympathy or something. I got none. Right. (laughs) So anyways, I made a lot of changes and um, I was actually doing really well. And I was working the steps and I was going to my meetings and I actually got my kids back in May of 2014, which was two months early. And um, it was really sudden. Like DHS called me and was like, you can go get your kids now. And I was like, okay, really? I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't supposed to get them until July. And I got them on May 28, 2014. And things were good for a while. And I, but I did, um, I had, at the beginning of the sobriety, I had cut off the relationship with a guy that I was dating and then I started up the relationship again too soon. I definitely think it was too soon um, because I was trying to focus on working my steps and rebuilding the relationship with my children, you know, getting back into our routine. And then I added a boyfriend in with it. And so I don't think that was a good idea. Personally, now looking back at it, I don't think it was. And the school year started my son has a lot of um, behavioral and emotional issues. And yes, it's, you know, more than likely it's because of me and um, my alcoholism, which I, um, is definitely hard to admit to myself and to others. But his behavior seemed to be getting worse and worse. And by, um, let's see, January 7th, the DHS case was closed. And January 31st, I was up at the school the school had called me once again to um, come up there. I had to leave work again. And he, my son was basically suicidal and just completely crazy behavior, running around the school, and we couldn't really catch him. He didn't tell me that day, but a few days before, that he wanted to run out in the street without looking both ways. And that... Mm. Um, um, nothing, I, nobody would care if he killed himself. And he, at one point he told me that he wanted to run away. And then whenever he came back, I said, fine, run away. And he was out on the sidewalk. And of course I was watching him. But, um, when he came back in, he said, mom, I decided to come back. And I said, well, I'm glad you decided to come back. He said, well, I had three choices. And I said, what are your choices? And he said, uh, to run away, to come home or to kill myself. And he is six years old telling me this. Oh my and um, it was just a few weeks after that that we had to call the police up to the elementary 
to try to get him into a room to get him to calm down. So we got him into a room. He was saying that he wanted to stab himself in the heart. He really wanted to um, hurt his sister. And that morning he had actually attacked his sister. I was at work and the babysitter called and she was crying. And he said that he had jumped on her. It was like hitting her and stuff. And it was pretty crazy. We got in the police car. We went up to a children's recovery center where they did an assessment on him and determined that he needed to be inpatient. So the police said once they find a bed for him, um, we need y'all to call us because he can't ride with you because he might jump out of the car. And um, so once they found the bed, which is, it was in the Enid, it was two hours away from where I'm at. And they came up there and they like patted him down and everything and put him in the cop car and took him to the um, behavioral health hospital. And he spent the next um, two months there. And, um, Within that time, I celebrated a year, and then I drank, and then I got sober again, and then he came home, and he was on medication and all of that stuff, and, like, honestly, it just, the medicine, medication didn't help. Um, his behavior was, it was really, really bad, and at this time, like, I'm, I'm still on and off with the boyfriend, and at one point, I felt like I was just being pulled in too many directions, like, I'm trying to focus on my son and I'm trying to keep everything normal for my daughter. But my son is, you know, running up and down the street. He's yelling. He's kicking walls. He's tearing up his stuff. Everything in his room had to be taken out because um, I didn't know if he was going to try to hurt himself. All electronics need to be taken out. All cords, everything had to be taken out. I was really unhappy with my sponsor and with the meetings that I was going to just... Nothing felt right. It, I didn't feel like I had any control over anything. Like it was, everything was out of control. I was really unhappy in the relationship with the boyfriend. Right. Um, and I tried to voice that opinion, but it, yeah, it wasn't heard. I never, I really, never really felt like I was heard. <laughs> and um, I just, at one point, I kind of, it was May 17th. And I was at work. It was Sunday. I was having kind of a breakdown. And I was trying to keep myself together. But I said, I, I was told a coworker, I said, I can't take it anymore. I cannot take this anymore. This is all too much for me. I said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to drink. And I said, I can't. I said, I don't want my kids anymore. I can't do it. And he, she was like, you're okay. You're going to be fine. And I was like, I don't feel fine. I was like crying. I was like, sh you know, shaking. Just basically, I feel like it was a little bit of a breakdown. Anyways, that night I decided I was going to go have a couple of beers, which um, does not turn out to be a couple of beers. Um, <laughs> Never I does. Up, I ended up being out all night. I had a babysitter. And when I woke up the next morning, I was still really drunk, but I got the kids ready for school, we had to walk up to the school because I can't start my car since I was still drunk. So my daughter rode her bike. We couldn't find my son's bike. So me and my son walked. My daughter rode her bike. When they got to the school, they went inside. I walked back home. Well, a few minutes later, about 10 minutes later, my son shows up at my house and he has my daughter's bike. And um, he's like, what are you doing here? I said, did you leave school? He said, yeah. He's like, they said I couldn't leave the bike there. I said, so they just let you leave or what? Like, what did you do? And um, he said, I just left. And I just came home. 
okay, well, just go ahead and stay home because at this point he was not allowed to stay at school past 1030 because his behavior was too erratic, just um, too much for the school to handle. So he had to be gone from school by 1030 anyway. So I was like, fine, just stay home. Well, long story short, I decided I was going to drink. I was still drunk and I wanted to keep it going. And so me and him, we went up, we walked over to Main Street, which is, um, I'm pretty, I'm over by Oklahoma University. It's a really small community. There's like lots of people riding their bikes and jogging and stuff like that. So us walking over um, to Main Street was not anything, I don't know, it just was normal. Right. And um, there's a bar over there that I had a couple of drinks and um, he would sit outside. I would go in and have a beer and. I just kind of went on this binge, like crazy binge. And, but I had my son with me. We went to the thrift shop, tried to buy him a bike and there wasn't a bike there. So I bought him a camera. I got a tattoo. I got my nose pierced. <laughs> oh my like God. we just had, yeah. Like we just had this total crazy day. Um, he used to be in karate and his karate instructor is totally awesome. And it's on Main Street, which is over by, like, next to the tattoo parlor. And we went into, um, and he, I still let him go up to the kickboxing or the karate studio to just go um, work out and get some energy out. Anyways, I go, and I'm by then, I'm, it's, I'm almost a blackout. And um, I'm talking to the instructor, and I said, I just don't know what to do anymore. Jacob doesn't go to school. He won't listen to me. Like, I need help. And um, he was like, well, I'll get you in touch with my wife. She's a... Um, psychologist and I was like please and then I said can Jacob stay here and he said yes so Jacob stayed and um I um started like kind of bar hopping I guess kind of um drinking heavily um ended up uh, a friend of mine uh, I had left my phone at the bar the night before and I was waiting for the bar to open and the bar opened about four o'clock so I showed up at the bar it's all very blurry um, a friend of mine happened to find me there because everybody, the YMCA was calling everybody, um, because my daughter was still there and, um, they closed at six o'clock. And so finally somebody had to go get her, um, and meet me back in my house. And at that point I didn't know where my son was. And they're like, where's your son? Where's Jacob? And I said, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where he is. I can't even think straight. I'm so drunk right now. And um, they're like, we got to call the cop. We got to call the cops. I said, fine, call the cop. So we call the cops. They all show up. I said, I don't know where my son is. Well, in the middle of, you know, filing this report and explaining to the cop that I'm drunk and what I've been doing all day, my son calls me from the karate studio wanting to come home. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. I forgot my son was at the karate studio. That's where he was. And But by that time, it was too late. They, the cops had already called DHS and they went and picked up my son, came home, packed their stuff up and put them in a cop car and took them to a friend's house that was willing to take them for the night. <sighs> that next day was, it was really bad. I was so hungover. Um, just that really, that feeling of not, uh, just being so uncomfortable in my skin, just sick, hungover, shaking. I can't eat, and the thought of just the fact that I completely, that I lost my kids again, and I had just completely ruined everything that I've worked so hard for, and I had to go to court the next day. A couple of friends of mine decided that they had already had their everything set up, basically, to, for an adoption, 
support to foster. And so they stepped up to take the kids. And that's where the kids are now. I've been sober since then. And I started to go on the exact same path as I was as the first time that I got sober. I had the same sponsor. And she said, all right, these are the meetings that you're going to. This is what you're going to do. This is when you're calling me. All of this. And I said, okay. And I agreed. And this is what we're going to do. I was really struggling. I, I've kind of, I've lost a couple of friends um, since this happened. It's really weird how some, we're all alcoholics, but yet I've had a couple of people kind of look down on me for my, for my relapse. And just, I've kind of learned who my friends were. And my circle has kind of gotten uh, smaller, which is okay. I feel good about it. Um, my sponsor one night after a meeting, um, kind of went off on me. And, um, after that I changed things up. I stopped going to that meeting. I got a different sponsor. I, um, go to a meeting that is not so, um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about it, but I go to a different kind of meeting, open discussion. It's completely different than what I was going, than what I was in. My sponsor is completely different than the one that I had before. You know, I was having this voice in the back of my head telling me that I needed to get my story out there. And I go into meetings and I talk very openly about what I'm going through. I'm very open about getting my kids taken away twice, about going to jail, just everything. I've had a few moms um, come up to me and, you know, confide in me that they've had their kids taken away. And one girl is um, struggling to get her kid back. And another one was struggling to get her kids back. And I've just met a couple of moms and a grandma just that were needing some help and needing some uh, direction and some hope. And so since then, I've been able to share a little bit of um, hope and just a little bit of my experience with these moms about what's going to happen, what's going on, and just what I've been through. And my old sponsor made amends to me when after one meeting, and that's when she told me, she said, look, if you're not going to prison, there is a reason. God wants you doing something else. She's like, you need to be out there helping somebody. You need to be out there, get your story out there, help some women, and, you know, do good with this time that you originally would have been spending in prison. So that's when I decided to start my truth starts here and um, decided to just be completely open about my experience. And I'd read some other like Kelly Fitzgerald, the sober senorita. I've read her um, blogs and I follow her on social media and um, kind of look up to her and um, wanted to start doing something like that. And it's in an outlet. It's uh, um, I'm accountable whenever I'm, I'm doing this when I'm and I'm just I feel like I'm really like making a difference whenever I tell my stories because people are reaching out to me and telling me that they're going through the same thing too. And it, it really helps to know that I'm not alone. And, and I know it helps them to feel like they're not alone. Tomorrow I celebrate five uh, months sober. And this Friday I uh, plea in to community sentencing, which is like probation, just um, more difficult, more strict. And my um, probation officer... She just said, uh, you got lucky. You got really lucky. She said, your next stop prison. So you better straighten up or that's where you're going to end up. She said, this is your last chance. This is it. There's no more. 
And I know that. I definitely know. And it was just when I'm sitting there, sitting there watching my kids being taken away in the cop car and by DHS and the police, I'm just like, wow. Like, it never gets better. Like, it, it will always be like this. If I continue to drink, it will always be like this. It has never been any different. And I finally was able to convince myself. I was finally convinced that I cannot drink like a normal person, whatever that is. I never have drank normal. And the consequences get worse and worse and worse. And now my kids are the ones that have to really suffer the consequences of my drinking. And um, it was just like I had this awakening that, you know, it's never going to be different. And um, I'll never be able to drink the way that I want to drink, like in my mind, the way I think in my mind that it's going to happen like that. It never happens like that. Never just one drink. It's like drinking till 3 a.m., complete blackout, and who's that next to me? Like, what's going on, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, Ugh, um, those are the worst. And so it was just, it was just a true awakening to finally realize and to finally surrender and accept that I am alcoholic and that I cannot, I just can't drink. Me and alcohol don't mix, and we never have. And um, I finally accepted it, and I felt this just peace in me. And when I ran into my old sponsor, she said, something is different. She said, you look happy. She said, you look like you just have peace. Like you just seem peaceful. And I said, I am like, I've accepted it. I've surrendered and I get it. I just get it now. And, and I'm willing to live a different life now. And that whole thought of maybe this time it'll be different is gone. Like (laughs) there is not any doubt. There is no doubt in my mind now that I'm alcoholic and that bad things happen when I drink. And that's your story. (laughs) So far. (laughs) Melissa. Wow. Wow. All I can say as well is what, what amazing story and it's so powerful. And, you know, just recently I was at a meeting and, you know, one of the women in the room was, was crying and she was very open and very vulnerable. And it's such a beautiful thing to see, you know, people, women, you know, get honest and get vulnerable in a meeting because in a meeting, it's so safe. You can go in there and you can share your truth because that's what you need to do. And the only way to maintain a connection with a higher power and the only way to maintain your sobriety is to go to meetings and share openly. And that's exactly what you're doing. This is a, it's a very difficult topic, you know, with five months sober, you know, being able to share your truth. It's such a beautiful thing. And and I I just want to thank you for, for taking the time to share your story with us. Yeah, no problem. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I love it. I love it. So, you know, I usually ask um, five questions at the end of of the interview. Uh, for the newcomer, and your entire story has been for the newcomer. Uh, you know, as newcomers, if, if you're listening and you're going through a tough time, and you're listening to Melissa's story, I don't know how much tougher it can be to end up in jail, lose your kids, and be battling right now, and still be able to get up and tell other people because you know that to help yourself, you're going to have to help others first, and. Yeah. That's how this program works. You know, whenever you're down in the dumps about how your life is and poor me and poor that, you know, forget about feeling sorry for yourself. Go out and help somebody else. That's how you're going to feel better. 
so I want to ask you a few questions. Like, first of all, what do you feel is different? Like, specifically, what is different this time around? Um, this time around, I guess, like I said, um, just the accepting. I think the first time I got sober, that I don't necessarily feel like I really wanted to. I think I felt like it was expected of me. You know, like I got my kids taken away and it was kind of out there because my dad and my stepmom, they didn't really realize how far my alcoholism, how bad it was until that happened. Um, so it was kind of like out there and I didn't necessarily want to stop drinking. But it was kind of like, all right, this is what I do now. I got my kids taken away and I stopped drinking and I go to the parenting classes and blah, blah, blah. But I always had that thought in the back of my head that I would still drink that once all this is over with, I'm going to go back to the way that I was. But it said it's going to be better. It's going to be different. Right. I'll, I'll, and, um, and I always had that thought. Like, or when I get off probation, I'm going to go get me a big bottle of wine, and it's going to be great. And there was always that thought. Um, so I don't think that I fully accepted it. Um, this time, there is a level of acceptance that I cannot like explain. I accepted it. I surrender. I, it was like this huge awakening of like, all right, like my life will continue to this site. It will continue. The cycle will continue if I continue to drink. And I finally just accepted it because I am so tired of feeling that way. I'm so tired of waking up in the morning and just having that feeling in my gut of just like, ugh, yeah, again, it happened again. Like I'm just so disgusted with myself. I'm so tired of feeling like that. And what I've heard so many times in meetings that you don't ever have to feel this way anymore if you don't want to. And I absolutely do not want to. And like, I finally got it. It was like, all right, this is what happens when I drink a day of drinking. And I have police and DHS in my house. And it's not like that for everybody, but that's how it is for me. And I finally, I finally just accepted. I, I just don't want to live like that anymore. Is um, that the moment? Uh, you know, I always ask that question. You know, when did you have that that spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery, when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you actually could recover? Well, I think it, it didn't happen like right away after all of this happened because I was still in this fog and I was still just a mess. It really happened. After me and my sponsor that one night after a meeting had that conversation where she really said some things. Well, she later on made an amends for and she said she wished that she had um, waited a couple of days and then spoke to me because a lot of things came out that were not meant and were not. She just felt bad for it later. Right. But the way that I looked at her, I looked at her like she was God, like she knew she had the answer to everything. And after that day, I was like, you know what? Like, I don't have to be um, taught to you like that. And I can actually stand up for myself. And this guy that is trying to have a relationship with me and he won't listen to the fact that I don't want to, like, I can say no. And then, like, it's kind of like I just had this whole awakening of, wow, like, I can set boundaries. I can say no. I can do this. Like, I, it, it's just really weird how the awakening happened. It, I think it was like a little bit whenever my kids were being taken away, but it was kind of like this just huge, like aha moment. I'm like, you know what? 
everything is going to be okay. I'll be okay. As long as I'm not drinking, I'll be okay. I can make changes that are better for me. And instead of doing the same old cycle, it's going to lead me down the same road. And basically that for me, that was my awakening. Perfect. I love it. So do you have a, a favorite book that you would recommend to our newcomers? Um, a favorite book. Right now I am finishing up um, The Blackout, which I really like that. I like to read a little bit of spiritual books. Like I read the uh, Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life by Wayne Dyer. Okay. Um, the books that I read. I'm also, I'm a little bit more spiritual than I am like religious. And so I have a lot of spiritual books. That's great. I have a, a creative visualization that I read. And then the blackout is what I'm reading right now. So Perfect. We'll list yeah. those in the show notes. And if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would it be? It would be to just be open-minded. Be willing to try something different. And, you know, yeah, listen to somebody else is difficult. Listen to somebody else's suggestions it is not fun because, you know, as most alcoholics, we are, are I don't like to follow the rules, obviously. <laughs> like, I'm in jail all the time. Right. <laughs> um, we don't like to follow rules. But, you know, just be open-minded because, obviously, the way that we're living beforehand is not working. So maybe... Work on trying some suggestions from somebody else. Get a sponsor. Start working the steps. Go to the meeting. Beautiful. Find what works. Well, yeah. what was the best suggestion you ever received? It's not necessarily a suggestion, but kind of like it just what people told me is that you don't have to feel like this anymore if you don't want to. Yes. And it didn't. at first, I didn't really understand. I'm like, I don't understand. They're like, you just don't have to feel like that. Whenever you're hungover and you're feeling like crap and you forgot where your car is and all that stuff and you forgot what you did last night you don't have to feel like that anymore like that is a horrible feeling that's a horrible place to be and that it was um i just like that beautiful beautiful wow melissa great suggestions great stories wow thank you so much again thank you so much for sharing your story with us well thank you i appreciate you having me absolutely it's been wonderful folks we have now reached the end of our show Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.